The year was 1928 when a horrible, loathsome human being was brought into this world. A man who we know by three first names. Now, throughout the course of human history, I think, I haven't done any scientific study here, but if I know your first, your middle, and your last name, there's an 80-20 chance that you were either a serial killer or a murderer. Lee Harvey Oswald, John Wilkes Booth, John Wayne Gacy, Paul John Knowles. That's right, didn't think I knew that last one, did you? But I do. The Titanic and murderers. That is my wheelhouse. So anyway, to who I speak of, James Earl Ray, the American fugitive convicted of assassinating Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights hero who we honor on this very day. But back in 1968, a horrible shooting took place, one which killed Martin Luther King Jr. at the hands of James Earl Ray. Ray then fled to the UK. He was captured, convicted in 1969 after entering a guilty plea and sentenced to 99 years of imprisonment. James Earl Ray and that cowardly bullet, that horrific shooting, changed the course of American history and the civil rights movement and took from this world a true hero, a minister, a father, a great orator, and a leader who through nonviolence and civil disobedience inspired millions to speak out and fight against all forms of discrimination. Now, just to be clear, I don't want the sensitive subject matter of an assassination to allow you to misconstrue what I'm about to say. So let me state, on the record, 100% unequivocally, the worst shooting related to Martin Luther King Jr. was his assassination by James Earl Ray. But, now stick with me here, this is where it gets a little tricky. Not trying to get canceled, just doing a cold open. If you were to submit a second place, number two, on the list of worst shootings surrounding Martin Luther King Jr., I would say that in consideration would have to be what Kevin Love did today against the Pelicans. One for seven from the floor, 0 for four from deep, until JB mercifully decided we've seen enough and put him on the bench in the fourth quarter. Oh, two hands! That'll bring the house down! Three on the way. Good! And Garland spins down the lane and laid it in! This crowd has erupted! Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, your host on this national holiday, a great day. As an NBA fan, because much like Christmas, we get all-day basketball. It began this morning with the Boston Celtics, who unfortunately defeated their opponent to continue to throttle the Eastern Conference and hold the top spot there. Then we saw the Milwaukee Bucks defeat the Indiana Pacers, despite the fact that T.J. McConnell put forth an incredible game. And then... Our beloved Cavaliers, the third game of the day as they play host to the New Orleans Pelicans who were without Zion Williamson, but still a team to be reckoned with, a team that heading into the day was the third seed in the West. They continue to be the third seed in the West. They are 26 and 18 after today's performance, whereas the Cavaliers, 28 and 17. Now, no big movements in the Eastern Conference standing. The Cavs are still locked in a dead heat with the Philadelphia 76ers, but below them, the Knicks, 
fell to the Raptors in overtime, despite the fact that Scotty Barnes bricked a free throw, which gave R.J. Barrett a chance to go coast to coast, smashing a dunk and send it to OT. But the Knicks came up short as Jalen Brunson missed a three-pointer at the buzzer to lose the game. So the Raptors won. They climbed up to just outside of the play-in picture. A incredible 20-24. and And the Cavaliers... They won. That's all that matters. They got back on the right track. They're now 19-4 and at home on the road swing. The five games on the road. Now, I know there's been a few games off as I've been traveling. I was out in Portland, then I came back on Saturday, and after losing the game to the Timberwolves, I'll be honest, didn't really feel like a weekend podcast after a loss. I was riding high from being present for a victory in Portland. But when all was said and done, the Cavs went 2-3 and on that road swing. There was a distinct chance. The Cavs could have gone 4-1. and one. They dropped a game to the Jazz, which was very winnable because of a Jordan Clarkson eruption. They managed to pull out the game in Portland and then followed that up with a disappointing showing against the Minnesota Timberwolves, playing without Carl Anthony Towns and losing Rudy Gobert to a groin strain. But the bench was incredible. Nas Reed played great. Luca Garza had a stupid fourth quarter where he went 4-5 for five and... The Timberwolves managed to shock the Cavaliers on what felt like mostly a disparity in energy, one in which, because of the uh, flu-like symptoms of Donovan Mitchell, he did not have a particularly good game. And that brings us to today, a victory, which is the important thing. But let's discuss how we got there. The man I just alluded to, Donovan Mitchell, well, he left the game. He left the game with a groin strain. Ironically enough, first, Rudy Cobert gets COVID. Mitchell gets COVID shortly thereafter. Then we're playing the Timberwolves. Rudy Gobert leaves the game with a groin strain. The very next day, Donovan Mitchell, groin strain, exits the game for the Cavs. I don't think it's a communicable disease, as I pointed out at Fear the Fropod on Twitter, but it certainly is an odd coincidence that whatever ailments befall Rudy Gobert shortly thereafter seem to impact Donovan Mitchell, even as the two have parted ways. So Donovan Mitchell exits the game. But what happened in this game against the New Orleans Pelicans? Well, heading into the game, we started it off much the way that the Cavs started the game against Portland. A lot of big-to-big passing. Allen was involved in seven of the Cavaliers' first nine points as he had a hook shot, an alley-oop to Evan Mobley, and an assist to Isaac Koro, who knocked down a three-point look of his own. The interior passing was incredible, and Evan Mobley got to the places so that the passers can find him. The alley-oop from Allen, he got dump-offs from Garland, Lavert, Love, all in that first period to finish 4-for-4 four four from the floor with 8 points. Now, the first quarter was not an anomaly. That theme of the bigs taking advantage of the looks that they got and converting at an extremely high efficiency, that carried throughout the course of the whole game. Cleveland had 43 points from Evan Mobley and Jared Allen on a combined 17 of 22 from the floor. And Jared Allen, a perfect 6-for-6 from the line on the game. And Evan Mobley, 3-for-4. So overall, if you're getting 9-for-10 from the stripe from your bigs, that is a win. Now, it did not end with the shooting. Typically, we've seen a lot of dimes from Evan Mobley here, but Jared Allen put forth 24 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists. That level of passing is normally reserved for guys like Embiid and Jokic. But here's the thing with Allen. His three highest assist performances this season have all came in the last week. He gave us five assists against Phoenix, he gave us five tonight against the Pelicans, and he gave us six, his season high, last week against the Portland Trailblazers. All of those games, by the way, victories. We're starting to see a two-headed monster here, where I know everybody looks at Mobley 
as the one with the great court vision. But Jared Allen has been getting the ball a lot on the high post, and people have been giving him space. And in past seasons, maybe you say, "Uh, that's a 50-50 shot, I don't want him pulling up. But he's introduced wrinkles, taking a dribble in, throwing up a one-handed floater, waiting for the defender to commit, and then finding guys diving those baselines. And even the kickouts, the kickout to Okoro on the three. And if Okoro continues his stretch of basketball, we'll get to him in a moment. He again had another good night as a starter. It was a truly balanced effort tonight. And yes, Donovan Mitchell wasn't out there, but to win in multiple ways where we've seen the Mitchell takeover games and then we have games like this where he's forced to exit. And what we didn't have last year in terms of a backup plan when Darius Garland is out, we have that now. If Mitchell's out, Garland's usage increases. And he certainly thrived in Mitchell's absence today and we're getting more in terms of a little bit of creation from the front court. We saw the Cavs start the game against Portland with a lot of big-to-big passing, and they did it again tonight, and it's a trend that I'm very much in favor of. And it shades of when, back in the Zadrunas Ogoskis era, how they would feed him early in the game just to get the bigs established. I'm liking what the Cavs are doing here in terms of trying to unlock those bigs by giving them the chance to create some offensive looks for each other early in the game here. I think it was a big part of getting them going and getting consistent production from them. Jared Allen's assist-to-turnover ratio this month is unbelievable. 22 assists to just 7 turnovers, and over a 3-to-1 assist-to-turnover ratio. Do you understand where that would put him amongst the NBA leaders? Since January 1st, Jared Allen is 5th in the NBA among centers for assist-to-turnover ratio, sitting just behind Al Horford, Nikola Jokic, DeMontis Sabonis, and believe it or not, 2nd is Mitchell Robinson. Shocking. I realize. But Jared Allen doing that big work. Just an incredible game from him. And even though Darius Garland gave us 25 of his 30 points in the second half, including 11 in the third quarter, 14 in the fourth quarter, the start to finish well-rounded play of Jared Allen on both ends of the floor, including seven offensive rebounds, he was the player of the game. Now that is not to take anything away from Darius Garland because enough can't be said about the fact that when Mitchell left the game, with the groin soreness, and went to the locker room, Darius Garland seized the moment. The second half, 25 points. And in that fourth quarter, we entered the final period down by three, and the Cavaliers strung together just an unbelievable 15-0 run that spanned the end of the third to somewhere early in the fourth. And the floor general during that time was Darius Garland. He did not come off the floor in the second half. He played all 12 minutes in the third quarter, all 12 minutes in the fourth quarter, Don't kid yourself. As much as I threw a party for Jared Allen, this was a 1A, 1B game between him and Darius Garland in terms of who turned the tide to help the Cavaliers prevail. First half, Darius, 2 of 8 from the floor, 1 of 4 from 3, so just 25% shooting. But when he was called upon in the second half, 7 of 14 and 4 big three-pointers of his six three-point attempts. Not to mention, perfect from the stripe. 7 of 7. Now, hopefully, this groin injury isn't something that lingers. And we have seen Mitchell struggling as of late with health stuff. He had the flu, and then now with this groin strain, perhaps this is going to be a period of the rest of the team has to rise up. But maybe that's just what we need heading into the All-Star break because Ricky Rubio is back. His minutes will continue to escalate. He got about 16 minutes tonight. Didn't do a whole hell of a lot. It's kind of piling up a lot of personal fouls out there. But I think you feel a lot more confident that we can weather the storm without Mitchell knowing that Ricky Rubio is back. Now let's talk a little bit about Isaac Okoro, because as a starter, this man has thrived, and he continues to play exceptional basketball in this month of January. His three-point shooting, 
55% on the month. And tonight, another 50% effort, made two of his four looks, but chucked the offense out of it. That was good. 11 points, I'll take that. However, it was his first half defense on C.J. McCollum, which really set the tone and prevented, despite the bench doing an excellent job for the Pelicans in the first half, and good first half from Najee Marshall and Trey Murphy the third. Okoro's defense on McCollum really prevented them from blowing open a much bigger lead because he had a rough first half. Fighting through a Jonas Valanciunas screen is not an easy job, but McCollum went two for nine in the first half, missed all four of his three-point attempts. It was very quiet. The second half, he erupted a bit. 21 points for McCollum in the second half. But here was the second half series of plays, which really gave me a lot of optimism that he's turned the corner in terms of his confidence and ability to battle through some adverse situations. Now, late in the fourth quarter, the game wasn't completely decided. The Cavs were leading by seven points. There was less than three minutes left, and Okoro got the ball on the corner for a three-pointer. He pump faked. His man committed just enough that he put the ball on the floor, drove past him, and elevated for what would have been an emphatic nail-in-the-coffin type dunk. But he dunked it so hard, it went off the back rim and caromed out of bounds, just to play that it wasn't good. From there, McCollum came down and got a three-point look, which he missed. After a few more possessions, it's still a seven-point lead for the Cavs, who find themselves struggling to inbound a ball after a made Valanchunas free throw. And they give it to Isaac in the backcourt, who changes his pivot foot before putting the ball down and gets called for a travel, giving the ball back to the Pelicans. Two avoidable mistakes, mental errors, but he rallied. Because the very next possession, McCollum gets the ball, drives to the rim, throws up a four-foot bank shot, and Isaac Okoro is on his hip the whole way. Elevates straight up, doesn't create body contact, just a very clean contest, and frustrated, McCullum misses the shot, turns around, and screams at the ref, immediately gets a technical foul. That seven-point lead becomes an 11-point lead after a technical free throw from Garland and a made three-pointer. The end of the game, right there. And a huge part of that was due to McCullum losing his composure. Now, if I was on the fence before this month, January has sealed the fact that Isaac Okoro has taken the reins of the starting small forward position. And obviously, this vacillates a lot game to game, but I think it's an excellent sign for Okoro that in closing time, JB went back to him. He also played Lamar Stevens the entire fourth quarter, basically. So Osmond didn't get off the bench, and Levert, who had a solid first half, eight points, did not score at all in the second half. Now, Love needed to be relegated. That was the choice to make, and I'm glad JB did not put him on the floor in the fourth quarter. If there is one negative to this game, and let's touch upon that, it is Kevin Love. I want to say this. I haven't ridden that hard on Kevin Love because I do think there are extenuating circumstances. He did not miss time after he fractured a finger back at the end of November, the November 19th. Since that point, Kevin Love has averaged seven points seven rebounds, but he's done it on absolute horrific three-point percentage and field goal percentage. Sub 30% from three, 29.5%. That's not going to get it done. Worse yet is that over the last several games, in Phoenix, we saw him go 0 for 5. In Utah, 0 for 4. Against Portland, 0 for 2. He finally knocked down a couple threes in the first quarter against the Timberwolves last game, and right back to the 0 for column tonight, 0 for 4. So, over that stretch, we're talking about two for 19 in his last five games. And for as good as he's been rebounding, defensively, he's been targeted pretty much any time he's near the restricted area. It's resulted in fouls. 
He has not been able to draw charges in the same way that he did last season. He's struggling. There's no way around that. And with a salary as huge as he is about to come off the books, it will make many people say, why is he untouchable? Why wouldn't you trade him? I mean, I see it already, and I understand it. But the man is not going to get dealt for two main reasons. One, he has a huge salary that would be difficult for most teams to match. And two, we've already seen stories leaked out there through the beat writers about the Cavs have a desire to re-sign Kevin in the offseason. They're not going to say those things if they would really entertain the idea of trading him. I just don't think they'll do it because they are very conscious of the PR hit that they would take. All we ever hear is they care about the character of a person. And I get, they traded Larry Nance Jr. They traded Lowry Markinen. But those guys didn't have the history here that Kevin Love did. They weren't here during the title runs, or at least not during the winning title run. Now, earlier this season, when Al Horford signed his extension, I was speculating on what Kevin would get. And based off the fact that he was third place and sixth man of the year last year, and he started out the season fairly decently, I was thinking if they re-sign him, he'd get somewhere around 10 to $12 million a season on a short-term deal, maybe a two-year deal, maybe a three-year deal with a team option on the final year. This bodes well for them signing him at a much more reduced price in all likelihood. But let's not act like Kevin was completely useless at the beginning of this season. Before November 19th was a much better player than the version we're seeing now. Now, I don't know how long it takes to shake something like this fracture or if he's just going to be playing with it all season to the point where nothing will improve. But in the 15 games prior to that injury this season, he shot 43% from the field and 41% from three on nearly six attempts a game. Do you remember the Dean Wade, Mitchell, Kevin Love game against New York? Do you remember when we were a top three team? and three-point shooting to start this season, that coincides with when Kevin Love was not injured. Included in that stretch was the eight three-point game he had against the Knicks, the five-for-six showing he had against the Chicago Bulls, and multiple four three-pointer games. So, I get it. What have you done for me lately? That will carry the day. And he has been bad. It was downright painful watching him today. Right now, he is shooting some of the worst basketball shots we have seen from the outside. But the thing to remember is this, even if, even if the Cavaliers could move Kevin Love, for them to find somebody who can match nearly $30 million in salary, I think it's just unrealistic. I'm not going to lie. I fantasize a bit about bringing in two volume three-point shooters. I've seen people speculating with the trade machine. Okay, the Malik Beasley stories out there, the Tim Hardaway Jr. stories out there. You could basically get both those guys Kevin Love and some contractual scraps in terms of making the salaries match. You would need other assets. But if all these Atlanta rumors are true about how much they just want to get off John Collins' deal, then you never know. The Cavs could find themselves in some kind of facilitator role. But that brings me to a subject which has been out there on Cavs Twitter and Reddit and on uh, Cleveland.com and all these places. The rumors of a potential three-way deal involving the Atlanta Hawks the Utah Jazz, and the Cleveland Cavaliers, a deal that almost certainly would see Karis LeVert routed to Atlanta as an expiring contract, John Collins ending up in Utah, and Utah sending a player to Atlanta and sending Malik Beasley to Cleveland. Here's what I would say about that. I asked on my Twitter account, at FearTheFroPod, I put up a poll. If you take draft compensation out of it, who would you prefer? And Beasley was 60-40 favored over LeVert. 
So I think a lot of people, they feel the lack of three-point shooting. The void that's been created by Kevin Love going absolutely stone cold and Osman not having that many minutes night to night. He's cracked 15 minutes just once in the last five games, and he hasn't hit a three-pointer in four games. That has made people very desirous of consistent three-point shooting. And we've seen the kind of benefits that come from it in the addition of Mitchell. But adding Beasley is not without problems. Levert does a lot of things fairly well. He doesn't do anything excellent, but he's a better defender than Beasley. He's a better distributor. He's better in isolation situations. He is a worse three-point shooter. That is basically where it ends. Now, to Beasley's credit, he's one of the most prolific three-point shooters in terms of volume and attempts in the NBA. He's fifth in the entire league right now, 143 made three-pointers. He's putting up over eight three-point attempts per game. That's top 10. And in that top 10, he's the only guy who averages less than 30 minutes a game. But you can't sit out here complaining about the number of touches Evan Mobley gets in the offense and then replace a low-usage Isaac Okoro with a guy who's firing up nearly 10 attempts just from outside the arc a game. Do you think that's going to help that situation? Because it probably doesn't. And I'm not saying you don't do it because of that, because they wouldn't always be sharing the floor. But it's definitely a consideration if you even, in fact, need that level of volume from outside the arc and what it would cost to acquire that. Now, contractually, I think there's some real benefits to Malik Beasley that Karis LeVert doesn't possess. I could imagine the Cavaliers' front office is hesitant to commit long-term money to somebody who's been as peaks and valleys as Karis LeVert. Plus, we're getting his healthiest season in forever. This could just be an anomaly. Malik Beasley is younger, but contractually, here would be the benefit. If there is some deal in the works that is going to route LeVert elsewhere and bring in Beasley, while I do think it creates some other issues, losing LeVert, Beasley comes with an additional year of control, a team option on a final year which would cost around $15 million. So, the Cavaliers would at least get one more full season to A, integrate Beasley, and B, flip him at next year's deadline if it's not going to happen. And they'd be flipping a guy who's younger and has a very sought-after skill set in the modern NBA, which is shooting, and could probably get a bigger return than they're able to find for Levert this season. Here's the thing, though. Why, if you're the Atlanta Hawks, in a scenario where you can just take Beasley straight up or Karis Levert's salary, would you choose Karis Levert? You have a team option for Beasley. You could take him in, and at worst, you pick up the option, you trade him next year. He has more trade value than Levert. The only answer there is that they're being incentivized to do it. What do we have to offer beyond Levert? Is the second-round pick enough to get that done that we route to Utah as incentive for them taking on Collins' contract, and that's why the Hawks are willing to rope us into this? I don't know. But either way, it just doesn't seem all that appealing to Atlanta to me. I think there's some components that we just don't know, which are missing from these rumors that are out there. But to me, Karis LeVert has value. I'm not saying he's the knockdown fifth starter, but he has rotational value for us, and he's had very good games at times. So I'm hesitant to endorse this idea that it's a substantial step forward getting Beasley for Levert and whatever scrap draft assets you have. Now, if you told me I could take Kevin Love as the movable piece and somehow I could bring back Bogdan Bogdanovich and Malik Beasley both, I would do that in a heartbeat because... That would add a whole bunch of three-point shooting and even a little secondary creation from Bogdan 
without costing us Levert. Then, if Love wants to come back in the offseason, fine. Now, we don't have much front court depth if anybody goes down, but I am just talking out of my make-believe ass right now. It can't possibly be worse defense than Kevin Love, but that's not on the table. And anyone who heard my trade exploration pod for the Hawks knows that I like Bogdan as a player, despite his contractual obstacles and age. But in the end, this mostly comes back to one thing for me. It's not that I don't like Beasley. It's not that I don't like Tim Hardaway Jr. or Bogdan or any of these people that get talked about. It's that I think there's a portion of the fan base that is underestimating the impact Karis LeVert has for us. We're just fixating on the stats that matter to us and this hypothetical fit. And we've seen plenty of guys get brought in, <clears throat> Jay Crowder, who hypothetically seemed like they would fit and then they sucked with this squad. I don't know what the offseason brings. And I do see the appeal of moving Levert if you can get a controllable longer-term asset. But in terms of a straight player-for-player scenario, it doesn't knock my socks off. Now, when I knew all the details, the draft components, the things we had to do to grease a deal, maybe I'd feel differently. But at least on a base level, Levert out, Beasley in. I'm not overwhelmed by it. I think it could create as many problems as it solves. Now, that being said, I would take Beasley over Tim Hardaway Jr. any day of the week. He's younger, his contract is less, and it's a team option, so if it's a complete fail, well, then the Cavs can cut ties in the offseason. They're still not going to have a lot of cap space, probably sub $12 million to do anything with, which is a drop in the bucket in terms of what you can actually do in unrestricted free agency. It's not much at all, but Beasley's younger, and that alone would make me lean towards him over Tim Hardaway Jr., so anyway, that's enough trade talk. We got a big game to fixate on. We got a, probably three or four big games here. We have the Grizzlies, one of the best teams in the Western Conference. We have the Warriors, who that will create a lot of animosity between me and the gentleman who purchased the tickets for the Cavs-Portland game. I was gifted unbelievable seats, probably the best seats I've ever sat in, by a Warriors fan. I know, right? A Warriors fan who was the best man at my wedding even. And I know you're probably wondering, very valid question, why do I ever even speak to Warriors fans, let alone sit with one and dine with his family? And I'll say this, how dare you write off an entire group of people based on something as insignificant as color of their fan attire, blue and gold? Did Martin Luther King Jr. not teach you anything, you fan bigots? Sometimes good people come in all packages. And they should be judged as individuals, based on the content of their character, not the scumbaggery of their roster. Look at it as a reparations of sort, fan reparations. The Warriors subjected the Cavaliers to a lot of suffering. I think it's only right that he makes that right. But don't you worry. Draymond Green will get no quarter here. I hate him, and I'll hate him till the day that he retires. I just compared Kevin Love to the man who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr., and that was just because he had a bad shooting day. I love Kevin Love, or five bad shooting days. Whatever. The point is, this podcast is over. Thank you to everyone who has made the Fear the Fro podcast your Cavalier listen. That sounds strangely like the lockdown podcast open. I didn't mean to bite their style. Sorry, Evan, Chris. But thank you for the listens. Thank you for the subscriptions, the ratings, the reviews. I am grateful for all of them. Once again, I'm Bob Schmidt, your host, lifelong Cavs fan, Bob at Fropod.com. Another episode of the Fear the Fro podcast 
is on the way soon. Thank you. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.